Liam. Hey, Tom. You know what I've been playing recently? What you been playing recently? Shadow of the Colossus HD Remastered. Okay. It's pretty fun. It's pretty Not good. the agreed intro topic we still, we decided to do. No, but you know what? I thought we'd go a little lighter on the intro. You know what? Yeah, fine. You no. want to make it about Marco Rubio? Let's make it about Marco Rubio. Yeah. Yesterday, I don't Marco like talking Rubio, about the man, but we'll do it if necessary. He was publicly executed. He sure was, and it was fantastic. There, by children. By children. By children. We, we saw him get we, killed. We watched a real-life <laughs> wander take down the dumbest colossus. That's true. Yeah. Welcome to Media Majors. Ban all guns. Uh, vote in the midterms. Yep. Welcome to Media Majors, a podcast that's really just a weekly reminder to vote in this year's midterm election. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, I'm Liam Sr. I'm Tom Lockney. And we each research and tell a story about... Uh, Our preferred mediums from major media. Thanks, what do, what do I do? Internet culture and the culture of video games. Liam, what do you do? Showbiz, baby. We sure do. And then every week we like to center those stories for a little fun cohesion around a theme. Liam what's the theme this week misrepresentation oh shit whoa and i believe a little bird told me that you're going first uh it was me in a little bird costume <laughs> i can't believe you figured out it was me oh man big birds son. Don't, don't lie big bird's son don't lie that's the darkest muppet play uh a trailer also known as a preview or a coming attraction is an advertisement or a commercial for a feature film that will be exhibited in the future at a movie theater. Yeah. I know I said advertisement. I wanted to switch it up. Mm. Use the British way. <laughs> Color with a U. <laughs> the result of creative and technical work, the term trailer comes from originally having been shown at the end of a feature film. It was what was trailing the oh, film. Oh, no way. That's where I it did comes not from. know that. And people realized, but then people leave. Well, then why didn't <laughs> yeah. we rename it? That's what I said. I literally said trailers are now... As shown before the film, that way people don't leave, but the name just stuck. It's really stupid. They should be called Beforeys. <laughs> the first trailer shown in, Amer in an American film theater was in November 1913 when Niels Granlund, the advertising manager for the Marcus Lowe Theater chain, which became Lowe's Theaters, mm. produced a short pro promotional film for the musical The Pleasure Seekers, opening mm, at the Winter Garden Theater. That sounds like a musical for me, <laughs> Seriously. Uh, opening at a winter at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway, as reported in a wire service story carried by the Lincoln, Nebraska Daily Star, the practice which Lowe adopted was described as an entirely new and unique stunt, and that moving pictures of the rehearsals and other incidents connected with the production will be sent out in advance of the show to be presented in the Lowe's Picture Whoa. House. Whoa! What a stunt! Sick stunt, Lowe. Uh, so then they realized that, like, hey. No one gives a shit about the behind-the-scenes productions. <laughs> we'll just show clips of the film, like, in succession. And in the 60s is kind of when the modern trailer was born, that version, because uh, at first they were, like, a little longer, a little loftier. It was a lot of a narrator asking a lot of questions. There was a lot of text on screen. Are you ready to see a white man put his foot on the moon? It's more like, this is Bob Stevenson. Would you imagine that Bob Stevenson has been working the same job for 13 years? That's right, 13 years. 13. The movie's not about Bob Stevenson. This is for like a fucking Bob Stevenson is the beginning into this long description. As the world grew, trailers became sleeker. Less about text on screen and more just showing what the audience can come to expect. Oh, you know, like using the visual medium of storytelling to uh, maybe interest people in a story. Basically. Yeah. 
Sometimes. Amazing that it took them that long to figure it out. Sometimes, as we've talked about before, people get can get mad at trailers, like the guy who sued Suicide Squad because the tricky clown, the joke maker, wasn't in the movie. <laughs> everybody's, I everybody's love the joke maker. Suspicious clown. He's such a suspicious clown. Ugh. I love his his signature line where he squeaks his red nose and says, yuck, "I'm yuck, the clown now, Batman." Yuck yuck yuck. It's great. So here are some trailers that completely misrepresented the film. Okay, Tom. Have you seen Bridge to Terabithia? No, I have not, but I've read the book. I've read the book in middle school, so I knew what the lie was. Tell me about the lie. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, first off, I also read the book and saw the movie, but did not see the trailer for the movie when it happened. Oh, I saw the trailer. I did not know that it was marketed so poorly until (laughs) earlier this week when Liam said, hey, watch the Bridge to Terabithia trailer, and I got angry. I got mad. That's right. Because I read that book, and I saw that movie, and that trailer lies. So, okay. So, for those of you that have not seen the trailer for Bridge to Terabithia, the trailer portrays two children, um, played in the film by Josh Henderson and Anna Sophia Robb, who go as like very cute but kind of dumb looking little kids. They sure are. And like, she is, I sincerely mean this, the child version of a manic pixie dream girl. (laughs) Like, she has a short sleeve shirt over a long sleeve shirt. It's so weird. It's so weird because, okay, because I uh, was. Uh, I did not read the book. The book was read to me during quote unquote story time. <laughs> and I had kind of a similar uh, lied to experience where I thought it was going to be this like fun mystical story about a boy and his friend who he is manically in love with as, like as the even... trope goes. But like, and then the bad thing happens. And then I was like, what? That's like not even what I'm talking about, even though that's crazy. And I have a separate personal anecdote about that that I will be saying on the podcast. Okay. Okay. okay, so the reason that the trailer is insane is that the trailer portrays these two children who go into like the woods near their house and find a fantasy magical land with a sentient tree, very similar to like Lord of the Rings, like a huge like tall tree yeah. that like talls and well, I don't know the words, um, that like walks and talks. And like the first weird thing that happens is they see a giant footprint. And, but, like, it escalates to the point where there are these magical rodents that are attacking them with, like, wands and sparkles and, like, all these weird things. And it's just portrayed totally sincere. It's like As though that's what the arc of the movie is about. It's yeah, about yeah. here are two kids that go into the woods and find a fantasy land. And it's advertised literally as, like, Lord of the Rings for children. I'm so glad you got Bridge of Terabithia. And, like... It seems at one point they, like, they're maybe on the tree side and they have to like save it, but maybe like attack these other rodents. It's like, it, you think it's going to be like an adventure fantasy. This is not what Richard Terabithia <laughs> no, is about no, at no, all. Richard Terabithia is like a sad boy who is like afraid to do art because he's a boy. <laughs> Becomes friends with a girl that's like, here's some paint. I'm not kidding. That's a real thing that happens. Oh, also, also um, in the book, uh, he respects her because she beats him and his friends in a foot yeah. race. So she's not like the other girls. She's tough. It's also even worse because he kind of has a crush on her, but he very explicitly has a crush on his female teacher. And weird, weird. He's a kid. I'll get to the like weirdest part of that, but first, so not, the, not not that it's weird for young students to like be learning about themselves and have a crush on mm-hmm. on a teacher. It is weird that a a fictional story is like, yeah. Let me romanticize a child being quote unquote in love it's with like, a teacher. It's weird. So 
it's advertised as this total fantasy. The story is about two children who, yes, do go into the woods near their house and find literally nothing besides the concept of friendship and imagination. It's entirely in their heads, and they know it. Yeah. Like, there's no a beautiful mind type reveal where we think something is real, but then we learn it was like in a character's head. The whole time, the characters as well as the audience are fully aware the entire time that this is just an yeah. imagined fantasy. Terabithy is like a is like a metaphor nothing for their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. The tree looks like a bully or something. Like nothing <laughs> supernatural happens in the book. It is an incredibly supernatural trailer. In reality, it's honestly about a kid making a female friend, but then he has like this really big crush on his teacher. And here's what's so fucked up. So she dies. That's like the big thing is that the, the little yeah, the girl big, dies. She, she is swinging on a rope that they take to uh, Terabithia. Yeah, like their their fantasy river. land across the river. She falls, breaks her neck, and drowns. Do you remember river. why that like kind of happens though? No. It's established that she invites him to go into like the woods that day, like to go to Terabithia with her. And he cancels plans and bails on her to go on like a weird like field trip with his teacher alone. Or to like oh do, or do something to impress his teacher. And so she goes alone and it's raining and she slips and dies. And so it's not like, I don't want to be like, it's this kid's fault, but it's like kind of his fault. Because <laughs> she's not don't supposed to go alone. Don't tell him that. But like, it, like, their parents explicitly say like, don't go like alone out there. And she like goes alone because he bails on her. Okay. So I have this like little anecdote about her dying also. <laughs> awesome. So, oh, how dark is this going to get, Jane? No, it's silly, but it's just like adults are dumb. When I was like first exposed to this in any form, it was the book and I was in elementary school and I really liked the book. Um, cause you know, I was a child and it was a children's book. And I think I remember liking the fact that there actually isn't a romance between the two of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that he was in love with his teacher, but I liked that they were just friends. So anyways, I'm reading the book and I'm super into it and I'm like invested and curious and engaged as to where it's going to go. And I was reading in class one day during like reading time and I had this fucking teacher and he comes up to me and he goes, "Ugh, you're reading Bridge to Terabithia? Have you gone to the part where she dies yet? <laughs> Excellent and, teacher. And as a kid, I like was like, oh, he's fucking with me. And I was like, oh, obviously one of the main two children in Bridge to Terabithia, a movie that hasn't really done anything dark or had any, like the concept of death didn't even seem to exist in the movie until this woman died. This little girl died. <laughs> this little girl. Out this of child. nowhere. What the hell are you talking about? Or, you know, whatever you say when you're a kid to that extent. And he got like really young. He was like, oh, uh, uh, nothing. And walked away. Like he didn't apologize. Yeah, dude. He didn't yeah, explain dude. it. He was like, oh, uh, and left. I flip the page. The next page, it's like, Josh Hutcherson comes back from his great day with a hot teacher. His dad's sitting there and he's like, she's dead. Like, it's like that. <laughs> it's that soon. And I read it and it was the last page of the chapter. And oh, I was like, Jane, thank you. I was so fucking mad at that teacher. I was one page away. Ugh. Adults suck. Spoilers suck. The trailer for Bridget Terabithia <laughs> sucks. Ugh. Um, Jane, that antidote was like liquid gold. Friendship is enough fantasy to support a movie. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to introduce fake fantasy. Yeah. The movie Red Eye <laughs> is a movie, and it starts the way most movie starts. Are we talking about the Killian Murphy? Cillian. Billion. Uh, Red Eye starts with two strangers meeting on a plane. Sergeant McAdams and Killian Murphy. Hey. Hey, Killian. The music is light and fun. Mm -hmm. The sounds of a rom-com twinkling through the breeze. Maybe these two will fall for each other at 40,000 feet in the sky. Then suddenly the music changes. A film by Wes Craven? Wait, really? Yeah. 
We've been tricked. The trailer tricked you. It's a thriller. And then suddenly, Killian Murphy's eyes turn red. Oh, is he going to live up to his namesake? Watch to find out. What the fuck was that? Is he a demon? Do demons use air travel? Do they have to go through security? Can they get a premium upgrade? Hopefully, these questions and more will be answered in Red Eye. Turns out that it's just a thriller. The trailer company decided to make his eyes red, tricking people into thinking a supernatural twist were to happen. He's just a guy in that movie. This is so funny because I've seen... Okay, so I've read Bruce Terabithia and I've seen Red Eye... But not the trailers. I never knew that. That's ridiculous. They sold it as like he is gonna is like a demon in the sky that is going to like torture why Rachel would McAdams. You, why but... would you not just make it what it is, which is that a scary man is on an airplane with you? His name is Jackson Rippener too, which is so <laughs> dumb. <laughs> So fucking stupid. So I'm inclined to believe it was like a trailer production company or a producer choice mm-hmm. because Wes Craven said that Red Eye is one of his favorite movies he's ever made. Really? And he wishes he did more thrillers and branched out. out you know of what? Me too. I think Wes Craven was a versatile uh, director who should have uh, broadened his oeuvre a little bit. Look at that. Jane, tell me about another movie. Tom, how many Oscar flicks from this year have you seen? Oh boy, I can't, I can't, I, I really liked uh, Boss Minion, that was a Ugh. big favorite of mine, the Emotion movie, another one. <laughs> you didn't see Three Billboards. No, I did not, I chose not to. I did see Three Billboards. You did. And it's nominated for a lot of Oscars. And it's a terrible movie. Three Billboards lies in its trailers in a very different way. Bridge to Terabithia presents like literal plot differences, but also an entirely different genre. Three Billboards is like accurate that it's going to be like this weird black comedy drama, mm-hmm. but it lies in such a manipulative, like socially conscious, but evil way Yeah, where the trailer is presents the movie as like, it's going to be about race and pr- police brutality. And even maybe like some fucking feminism about like a woman <laughs> trying to avenge her murdered daughter. It is revealed in every form of the trailer that Frances McDormand, the main character, I don't remember her character's name, I think it's Mildred, her daughter was killed about seven months ago and the police have not yet found the murder. You know that going to the movie. You're like, that's what that's about. We find out about 10 minutes in the movie in a cut reveal, like it's presented as a reveal, that not only was she murdered, she was raped. Because the very first billboard, which you don't see in any of the trailers, is raped while dying. Which means when you drive down the road, the first one you see is raped while dying. This movie is, like, not about sexual assault at all, and it doesn't explore it, and it barely indicts it, and it really... So much of the movie has nothing to do with this girl's death or them trying to solve it, and it honestly just becomes about a feud between two terrible people in a horribly unrealistic town. The other huge issue is uh, based on one of the most popular lines from the trailer, which is uh, spoken again by Mildred. She says, it seems, uh, and she says this to a camera crew on like national or at least local news. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks and eating Krispy Kreme to solve actual crime. If you see that in a trailer, you're like, oh, cool. Maybe they're actually going to call out. Maybe that's what the movie's about is like the the failures of uh, police institutions. Yes, to both women and people of color, which is accurate and important and very relevant at this time. Yeah, good lord. Here's the thing. The movie does the most shallow, 
shitty version of exploring police brutality. We learned that Sam Rockwell's character, uh, Officer Dixon, tortured a black person for no reason. We never meet the person he tortured. I do not know if they're supposed to be alive or dead. Nor do we learn the context of where, how, why he tortured him, or any details of it, or any consequences to it. He's still an acting officer. He has not been... He's not gone. at all. Yeah. No. Which, which is true to life. Yeah. It's true to life. But it's so... You shouldn't be using but, something so serious and real as a background character detail that's never discussed more than in brief mentions or swipes. Do you know how it's often used? Just like people trying to make insults to him. Uh, a huge part of this movie is slurs. I have a list I was going to do later that I still will that it's of all the like slur I won't actually say them. Yeah, yeah. All the slurs that um, were used in the film that are not in the trailer at all, which I know like some of it is legal. Some of them I think you could put in there, which is not good. It's, it is usually brought up as like fun insults to him where at one point like Mildred says to him like, Aren't you in the N-word torturing business, Dixon? And he's just like, ah, fuck you. And they continue going on. And it's like, really? We're not going to... Okay. It's, like, it's purely... It's, it's that purely casual? like lip service kind of uh, like almost yes. vocabulary as aesthetic. Like racism exists. Let's watch these people be racist. Not once is this police brutality actually condemned. And the only scenes of Rockwell being overly brutal to citizens, one happen with random white people. And our two are played for laughs. He'll like walk out on the street and just like shove someone to the ground. And it's like, ha ha ha. At one point, the character who like it owns the billboards and is renting them out to Mildred Rockwell keeps being like, no, take him down, take him down. He's like, no, she's paying. This is legal. I'm not going to take him down. He comes, throws him out a window, almost kills him. Yeah, uh, I believe Martin McDonough said that the film was supposed to be messy, but that's a thing that a defensive idiot would say. Um, if you want to actually present a, a narrative in opposition to institutional uh, brutality, bigotry, etc., center the victims of that instead of presenting uh its perpetrators as quote-unquote flawed right people um who are their own uh, uh somehow complicated beings because they accidentally happen to do the right thing in the middle of being yeah horrible horrible uh marginalizers and right. uh, brutalizers yeah. primeval 2007 american horror film and the trailer talks about a killer that's claimed more than 300 victims. Good lord. The way it's shot, the way it's staged, the way that, like, you know, people are looking around in the grass for something and then they're taken under. Super uh, like natural slasher. This looks like it's going to be a, a, a Ch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but in the, like, the grungy outdoors of the swamp Oi, lands. that's a knife in my stomach. In all the trailers and all the promotional material, even on the film's website, they say that this serial killer has claimed more than 300 victims. What they don't mention is that it's a crocodile, which is not a serial killer, but an no. animal. No, no, no. See, Primeval is about a real crocodile named Gustav, uh, Wait, no, no, no. Yes. Happy is his real yep, name. His real name. Who's killed over 300 people in Burundi. Um, 
audiences were incredibly disappointed with the movie because it had been marketed as, as if a it was serial be slasher, like, yeah, like a swamp slasher. They thought this was going to be like Jason, a new Jason, or a or new wrong turn two, or something like that. Yeah, it is just Orlando Jones improvising with a CGI crocodile. Wait, improvising? Really? Apparently, Orlando Jones improvised a lot of his own dialogue. Wowie, zowie. Okay. In an interview with the when the movie was released, was released. In an interview for when the movie was released, director Michael Cattleman laments about the decision. I'll be honest, I wasn't crazy about it. In a film like this, the croc is the star, and I think that the fans of the films of this genre wanted to know going in that they were going to see a croc movie. Unfortunately, it caused a lot of frustration with the fans, and at the end of the day, they felt deceived. I feel it detracted from the whole movie. I thought it was a noble attempt at getting the audience intrigued, but the result was that the audience felt like they were lied to. So it sounds like a bunch of producers didn't know how to market a giant a crocodile movie. Have they never heard of Lake Placid? Like, like yeah, it's 2007. Lake Placid yeah, has Lake been Placid out. Been There's also, we've had Tobe. a bunch of, like, monster, I mean, like, mo- monster movies. Monster movies are just animal movies, Tobe, but about monsters. Toby Hooper, the guy who did, or it's not Toby Hooper, whoever did the um, Friday the 13th movies, whose name is Toby. Yeah. Uh, he's made a giant croc- crocodile movie. Like, there have been many giant crocodile movies. Why, why would they... There have been crocodiles aren't serial killers. There's a legacy of animal movies. You can watch movies about like a killer baboon let loose in a laboratory. How do we not know that you market the killer as the killer? Also, the idea of it being a serial killer is hysterical to me because that 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 suggests that this crocodile like plotted to murder. 300 people that it has a pathological compulsion to murder and it was just a crocodile that like wanted to eat human flesh because it got a taste for it my favorite part of Mindhunter was when Jonathan Groff interviewed Gustav Mm. his name is originally the movie was supposed to be called Gustav it's so many bad decisions were made so much better we're gonna take another tonal shift from angry to horny. Mm, inseparable to me. Because, <laughs> God, I know it. Uh, the next movie we're gonna be talking about is Magic Mike. Uh, just to, that's the full title, but just to clarify, I am talking about the first one. This is not about Magic Mike XXL, which is also a flawed movie, but much better than the first one. <laughs> when I saw Magic Mike, I was around 15 or 16, and I watched it with a group of close, all-female friends at a sleepover I hosted. It was actually for my birthday. Nice. I was very cool. What we expected, based on the advertising... Uh, Matthew McConaughey's dick. We were going to see Matthew McConaughey's hog. I want to clarify... We were teenagers. We didn't know who Steven Soderbergh is. I don't think that you need to know who the or the. I don't think that you should need to know who a director is and what his work is. Or to know what you're getting into. To get what you're going yeah. into. Because so we the didn't whole see... point of a trailer is that it's it's advertising the work, not the worker. Exactly, and also like Steven Soderbergh hasn't been making movies for women, and this was supposed <laughs> to be a movie for women. It isn't. This was based off the trailers, and also I don't know if you remember around this time, Channing Tatum did like a weird press series of really sexy fluffy interviews where he would go on like a morning talk show in only a tie and like a speedo and talk about the movie and was really leaning into the fact that like you're gonna see some dick <laughs> and what we expected was a fun sexy light-hearted quotes girls night out flick that would level the gendered playing field of movies about stripping in addition to providing us with some eye candy and like just keeping the mood silly it was yeah. it looked like a comedy in oh, our God, defense, sleepover. we really didn't know who Steven Soderbergh was. We were going off the trailer, concept, press tour. 
this was supposed to be a comedy about male strippers for women starring Channing Tatum. What else would you watch in a teen sleepover? Like, this made sense. Well, what we actually got was a really inconsistently or tonally inconsistent movie that spends most of its time focusing on Channing Tatum's dream of opening a furniture business and Alex Pettifer's drug addiction. <laughs> uh, less than 15% of the movie is stripping and we see zero penis. I want to repeat that. There is no dick in the movie. Show us the dick, Soderbergh. Show us <laughs> the dick. Show us Matthew McConaughey's dick, Steven Soderbergh. There is essentially one female character and she's terrible. <laughs> yeah, holy. Moly. Uh, this was made entirely by men. Not only is it not very fun or stripping based, it's a surprisingly dark sort of indie movie, but it's advertised as like a sexy popcorn flick. <laughs> the darkness has nothing to do with the sex work also. It's not like realistic about that in any way. It's just a lot of random nonsense. I remember at one point I have a really strong visual of a teacup pig appearing for no reason. <laughs> Uh, like, it's if, like, the director just had a teacup pig, Steven Soderbergh, and was like, <laughs> yeah, you can be on the shot. Like, this goes to prove how good my hometown friends were. I went, hey, we had a million fucking sleepovers and watched a million different movies. Just anyone remember when you guys came over and we watched Magic Mike and yelled at it? And they all went, yes, we remember. Uh, someone else, I thought it was going to be a dumb movie with some naked guys, but instead it was just a dumb movie. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, something else, I thought... <laughs> I love my friends. This is so funny. Uh, quote, I thought it was just going to be a movie with a lot of male stripping, but it turned out to just be about drugs and weird lighting. Oh, my God. That rules. Snow dogs. Ow! Perfect. I still remember seeing the trailer for this Cuba Gooding Jr., who nine-year-old Liam was like, a star. This is a star. <laughs> and a bunch of talking huskies he inherits huskies and then at the end they're all on the beach and they're talking to him i don't remember this is gonna be a movie about talking huskies and cuba gooding jr putting aside their differences to become friends and sled across alaska does who let the dogs out play during the trailer you fucking bet your ass it does oh yeah my nine-year-old brain could not wait the hype was real and then the movie ended, and I felt cheated. I had felt betrayed, lied to, wronged. The dogs don't talk in the movie at all. Wait, really? Not even a not even once. In a dream sequence, he has. Oh yeah. Most of the trailers from that dream sequence where they're just not a beach talking, and one oh. of them's voiced by Jim Belushi. What does Cuba have to do in the film? He inherits like a a pack of huskies from his family that he didn't know. He had, and he and has he to just like loves them. He does. He becomes really close to them, and they they husky sled. And it's How does great. the dream sequence come about? You know, he gets like hit in the head. It's really corny, oh, and he's boy. just dream. And the dogs are like, "Boy, you're sure a fish out of water." And it's the worst. And I couldn't find any interview about it. I couldn't. I didn't know what the decision was. But the thing is, is that that type of that worked it worked so well it made so much of its money back because it like basically sold itself as like it's a movie about talking dogs it's for kids just kidding yeah. there's no talking dogs it's airbud it's airbud for huskies it was disney too it's they, snowbud they backed they backed this up and i think disney is also airbud so they're just all dog material airbud 11 snowbud the reckoning origins Wolverine. awakening <laughs> disney who backed the movie now had a model and they were not gonna let it go to waste.
the three movies I've already discussed kind of lie via their advertising in a variety of ways. Tone, plot, genre, dialogue, everything. This lies about a title. Wait, what? <laughs> in Can the they most do that? fascinating way. So the first trailer that came out for Good Luck Chuck is an accurate <laughs> representation of the movie. A sexist B minus bro comedy about a man who fucks women and then they find their soulmates right after having sex with him. Uh, side note, you know how this starts? He goes to a party as a teenager and a teenage girl puts a hex on him. He goes, sees her an adult. She's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I, I was a kid. That didn't work. Why, why do you believe in magic? That's like, hysterical. But we're still supposed to believe it's real because it does happen every time. Yeah. He meets a girl he actually likes. Whoa. How is Chuck going to figure this out? Oh, if he wow. has sex with her, she's going to go find someone else. <laughs> So that, that's what the movie's actually about. And that the first trailer makes that clear. Yeah. But shockingly, nobody likes it. And <laughs> was like, well, that's a bad, that's a, uh, we don't want to see that movie. We, we don't want to see anybody do this, let alone Dane Cook. So the second trailer is when uh, they start to get a little spicy with the rebrand. Okay. I haven't been able to find clear yeah, right. sources about exactly when slash why the second trailer was like released or like the exact feedback, but it was. In this trailer, the focus is much less on Chuck's penis hex, which is what the movie's about, <laughs> uh, and far more on the groundbreaking, sharp, subversive commentary on how some hot women are also clumsy. <laughs> so, that's right. Jessica Alba, who's the love interest, the woman he actually falls in love with and has a conflict because he wants to have sex with her, but then she'll go end up with someone else. Her insane clumsiness which is used in the most like if you were watching a satire of a rom-com it would be this she walks into poles she drops things at one point she closes a door in her skirt and steps away so her whole skirt rips off and you see her panties oh, and God. she's like oh no my panties are showing there you could you could make a supercut of the amount of times that something like that has happened to jessica alba on film something like that happens in the fantastic mm -hmm. four too where she's like i'm invisible but i don't know my powers yet and then she's on a bridge and she's naked in front of everybody and it's weird that we're supposed to laugh at her being yes. sexually humiliated. So in the movie itself, the clumsiness is present. But, like, it's just a lame attempt at, like, building a female character and generating jokes. It's not part of the plot. Chuck's issue is the penis hex. It has nothing to do with the fact that she's just a little clumsy. But somehow in this trailer, it becomes the subject of the film itself. This is now a movie about a man struggling to date a clumsy woman. <laughs> the conflict is no longer how is Chuck going to fuck a woman well enough to make her stay. It's now how will han Chuck handle dating a woman who sometimes trips on things. Cinema. Anyways, uh, the best and most obvious change, which was I was saying with the title, is in the vocal delivery of the movie's trailers. You know how there's always, like, the coming this summer guy that, like, yeah, you know, yeah. does those types of things? So in the first one, he says, uh, he's like, ah, like, coming in October, good luck, Chuck. And it's, like, his nickname that he has in the movie given to a man who has, like, a lucky dick. Oh, God. Is the next one, like, good luck, Chuck. Yes. The second trailer, the intonation changes uh, to good luck, Chuck. Good luck, uh, comma, Chuck. He's going to he is going to need luck to survive dating Jessica Alba because she is clumsy. <laughs> and that is somehow what they thought people would want to see more. Incredible. Kangaroo Jack. I knew it was coming. This is an article from the LA Times in 2003 by Patrick Goldstein. 
The film was a brainchild of Con Air screenwriter Scott Rosenberg and missing the action co-creator Steve Bing. As Rosenberg recalls, we were drinking in a bar when Steve told me the story as if it had really happened to these two guys, and I said, that's the greatest idea in the world, let's sell it. It ended up being the highest-selling comedy pitch ever. Originally titled Down and Under, the script was designed as a cool, midnight-run-style mob co comedy with plenty of thrills and sexy action for its teenage core audience. The kangaroo was a minor character. Bruckheimer, who was Disney Studios' top producer at the time, uh, outbid a host of rivals. I loved the idea, he recalls. It was interesting, clever, and I hadn't seen a <laughs> So sorry. And I hadn't seen a film with a kangaroo in years. Okay. All right. All right, Jerry. All right, Jerry. <laughs> then Disney Studio chief Joe Roth believed the mob comedies were passe, and he passed on the project. So Bruckheimer took it to Castle Rock. As he does with most films, Bruckheimer brought in scores of writers to punch up the script. The film was shot in early... You can, you can barely have two people alternating a story <laughs> for a podcast before one co-host gets real low energy. When the film was initially cut together, it was obvious that the kangaroo footage, using a mechanically operated animatronic kangaroo, didn't work. And neither did the film. No, just like it's just like Jaws. They were just doing it like Jaws, and nobody understood their art. However, looking at the early test screen results, Bruckheimer saw a ray of hope. There was one character that younger kids loved, the kangaroo. When the producers went to a test screening of the film, Warner Brothers chairman Alan Horn saw posters everywhere for a new Disney film called Snow Dogs. Rated PG and aimed at kids, Snow Dogs was an instant hit, buoyed by a TV, buoyed by a TV ad campaign that led the audience to believe that the dogs talked, which they only did in one brief dream sequence. I told Alan, let's make the kangaroo talk. Brookheimer recalls, we did a dream sequence where he raps. We changed Oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. It's, it's a hip a hop, a hippie. I said the hip, hip, hop, and the hip, hop, you know, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. We did a dream sequence game, where yeah. he raps. We changed the title to Kangaroo Jack, and we made it much more kid-friendly all around. Suddenly, a hip mob comedy was an adorable kangaroo picture. Warner Brothers ended up spending an extra $10 million to shoot additional footage and replace its to, animatronic to, kangaroos. To trick people. Let's, let's be yeah. clear at this point. To trick people and replaced its animatronic kangaroo with a computer-generated kangaroo. Uh, not every studio would do this, but Warner Brothers was betting on Bruckheimer's commercial instincts and was eager to keep him happy, because he helped make CSI, which made a ton of money for WB. So they had a new Kangaroo te Jack test screening, and it went through the roof. It was the biggest change in test screening numbers in Warner history. That guy, he brag about the stupidest things. <laughs> When the studio submitted the film to the MPAA for a PG rating, it was initially rejected, so Bruckheimer kept cutting out footage, largely sequences with objectable language or sexual innuendo. In this one, the kangaroo says fuck. It got its vital PG rating, even though a testicle joke and a groping scene remained. Ugh. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, in fact, Bruckheimer says that when parents... In keeping with the Snow Dogs model, Warner's put the film kid-friendly kangaroo front and center, releasing the film... On January 17th, the same day that Snow Dogs opened the year before. Asked if it wasn't misleading to run TV stop stops. Asked if it wasn't misleading to run TV spots with a talking kangaroo when the kangaroo doesn't actually talk in the film, Warner Brothers marketing chief Don Tobin explained, There's clearly a lot of kangaroo in the movie, and our exit polls indicated very strongly that a large percentage of the audiences were highly satisfied with the movie. Highly satisfied with kangaroo. Why? And the movie was panned critically! Hell yeah! <laughs> You know what? I, 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 you know, I think the most scathing thing that can be said about Kangaroo Jack is that the only reason that I saw it was that it was on the TV at the Taekwondo studio that I attended as a child. 
And there's still a lot of like adult jokes in Kangaroo Jack. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Jerry O'Connell's a hairdresser. The kangaroo eats his own ass. Yeah. Uh, also, the kangaroo... That's not true. I made that up. No, it is true. The kangaroo also doesn't talk. He raps once, and then he talks in the end over the mid-credits, and they used all those scenes. So it seems like there are two types of movies, at least the ones that I talked about, that do the lying about trailers. It's thrillers that lack a supernatural element but want to trick people into yeah, making yeah, yeah. it think it is. And kids' movies where animals talk in one scene but they pitch it as that the whole movie. I really think producers and marketing people think normal people are dumb. What if every single kids' movie was like that? Like, what if Balto Wolf Quest was just like, there's one sequence where the dogs talk and the rest it's like brutal pack conflict. And that's Jane and mine's tag team of trailers that blatantly just lied. We're going to take a quick break, hear about something else on the network, and then when we come back, we've got another story for you. So strap in. And maybe strap on? Do you find yourself unable to watch television? Who has the time? Well, luckily, we do. I'm Liam Sr. I'm Josh Phillips. We host a podcast where we watch old cancel TV for you. Musty TV every Thursday on the Major Cast Network. My father says we're crazy. My mother won't talk to me anymore. Media right. Majors is filmed before a live studio audience. The Alien franchise is one of the most iconic science fiction properties of all time. Starring Sigourney Weaver, they follow the grim misadventures of Lieutenant First Class Ellen Louise Ripley as she finds herself pitted against an alien race known as the Xenomorphs again and again and again. So many times. Boasting meticulous visuals, distinct and uh, very fucky designs. Yeah. Yeah. HR uh, Geiger has never made a thing, it had never made a thing in his life that was not fucky. And depth of characters. Perhaps the most interesting quality of the Alien franchise is its versatility. The first film, Alien, is a quiet, tense horror film directed by Ridley Scott with a seven strong crew of the Nostromo find themselves, find themselves trapped on their own ship, hunted by the ultimate apex predator. Aiden Stanton! The it's, cast is fucking A+. It's really good. It's the best thing that Ridley Scott's ever made. How dare you? Have you not seen Robin Hood? <laughs> oh, God. How dare you say such truths? Its sequel, Aliens, is the most relevant to my story. Game over, man. Game over. As its title suggests, there's more than one this time. I think that's the first time that joke's ever been made. Ellen Ripley returns her supporting cast consisting of the ooh-rah colonial marines. As you might expect, Aliens is less of a horror movie and more of an action movie with a horror aesthetic. Yeah. This movie's really, really important, not just because of its place in 80s action canon, but because almost every first-person shooter emulates its f formula. The influence of aliens on video games cannot be understated. Its tone, its visuals, its characterization is in everything from Halo to Dead Space to Metroid. Oddly enough, however, the alien property itself hasn't really stuck when it comes to direct video game adaptions. But of course, this is why the game sphere got wildly excited when, on December 11th of 2006, Sega announced it had bought the rights to the franchise from 20th Century Fox. Just Four days later, they announced that they will be funding a brand new game based on the franchise to be developed by Gearbox. There is nothing actually made. There's no labor put into it yet. It but is... Sega is funding a Gearbox alien game. Exactly. 
this actually also sorry alien slash aliens, aliens. Yeah, yeah. They they call it the Sega Aliens Universe. Okay. This actually isn't even the only Aliens game that Sega's got in the holster. They are now also working with Obsidian, who's done KOTOR 2, Alpha Protocol, Fallout New Vegas, to develop an Aliens RPG. How dope would that have been, by the way? But back to Gearbox, because they're the focal actors of this story. We all know Gearbox today as the Borderlands crew, but this is back in 06. Borderlands isn't even announced until 07. They cut their teeth in professional game dev on expansions to the original Half-Life, as well as full console ports of Half-Life that even included new content. So like, this is how, this is how some people make their name in the industry, is like they work on ports, they work on expansions, and from that like they DLCs. build like- they build like Exactly, they build a portfolio, you oh, know? Okay. In 2005, they also released their first original property, Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30. It was a critical and commercial hit and is still considered one of the best World War II tactical shooters ever made. So we've talked about it before. I yeah, it's definitely been mentioned. I think so like I, at this point it does make sense to hand this to Gearbox. Gearbox. They, you know, Aliens is a very quote-unquote like cinematic whatever that means in the context of the game space, but you know, when people use that term, they they usually talk about like, oh, like they're very good at telling a story. First person shooter makes a lot of sense. That these World War tactical shooters that that hold a, a lot of reverence for the Aliens film uh, to to take this on. They've done Half Life, which is like one continuous uh, again, like a quote unquote cinematic experience in the game space. It makes sense to give Gearbox an Aliens first-person shooter story-driven game. Mm -hmm. In February of 2008, we get a title, Aliens Colonial Marines, but still not a ton of info on the game, which is worrying. The game is slated for a 2009 release, though a November 2008 Shaq News report states that the game has been delayed. President and frontman of Gearbox, Randy Pitchford, maintains that development is on track. It's also worthy of note that in 2008, Randy Pitchford teases that Gearbox has begun work on a new, quote, huge title. So currently, Gearbox is working on three different major projects right now. Borderlands, because Borderlands is announced in 07. I skipped that, but I mentioned No, it. you mentioned it before. Yeah. Um, this new huge title and Aliens Colonial Marines. And also later that year, another worrying sign is Gearbox. <laughs> is uh, Randy comes out going, oh my god, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, uh, everything's great. And then he shits himself. I mean, like, hey, kinda. <laughs> oh no, Randy, no. by the way, in, yes. in late 2008, Gearbox is hit. You mean 2008? <laughs> Gearbox is hit. By a round of layoffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mean 2,000 and layoffs? Yeah. Oh, boy. It's not uncommon for studios to be working on multiple projects at once, but this is a lot of ambitious work for a studio with, like, a, a solid but relatively small portfolio. You know, yeah, Brothers in Arms is good, and they did a Half-Life port and a bunch of expansions, but that's not... To, to jump from that to, like, Making we have a game. three triple-A projects, which means that you are getting a triple-A, that presumably you're getting a triple-A budget for three different video games. Because, like, yeah, huge doesn't mean anything, but it can be assumed triple-A. Sega, triple-A, Borderlands, 
is I I think considered a triple yeah, A video it's a, game. It's a triple A video game. Yeah, that that there's no question. About it, it is it is wildly ambitious for them to to all of a sudden jump to three projects at once. We're we're looking at a, a studio uh, that has not has only put out one triple A project and is now trying to work on three, and one of them is all over the place. And I think the the fact that people like it is lucky, and there are a lot of cultural influences at the time. Sega also remains cagey about the Aliens project and quietly confirms the delay in the form of another game's release date announcement. In February of 09, Sega announces that AVP, Aliens vs. Predator, will be the first release in the Sega Aliens franchise. And is and to expect its arrival in 2010, the implicit truth here being that Colonial Marines will not meet its 2009 release window. It's kind of like a soft delay. Sega also officially and unceremoniously cancels the Obsidian RPG. We never see that. We don't know what it would have looked like. It is just gone. Sega was experiencing some severe financial difficulties at the time and chose to prioritize Gearbox. Don't worry, though. There is a glimmer of hope in the darkness. Something does get released in late 09, Borderlands, and it's a smash hit. Despite what the game is. It outperforms in every regard, and Gearbox is hungry for a sequel. I mean, like, rightly so. Like, they, they did not expect this to perform this well critically or commercially. They want to make another. They've got a formula. At the 2010 Penny Arcade Expo, Aliens Colonial Marines, now a full four years in development, gets five new screenshots. You know, you know how press do. You know how you, you give you know, material to the press, five screenshots of a four-year development game. But that's not even Gearbox's big 2010 news. Turns out that huge title they teased earlier, it's Duke Nukem Forever. Oh, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Duke Nukem Forever deserves a story in and of itself, but here's the brief context. Duke Nukem is a franchise. It was developed by the now defunct 3D Realms. It has never been good. It was just a Doom port with chauvinism and failed satire. Duke Nukem Forever was meant to be a sequel to the 1994 Duke Nukem 3D, but became trapped in development hell. Gearbox was actually formed by several 3D Realms expats, including Randy Pitchford, its president, uh, or the pres oh, Randy God. Pitchford, president Randy. of Gearbox, not 3D Realms. I should explicitly make that clear. Randy, who keeps going, oh, boy. Uh, this is part of the reason why they pursued the project so vis vigorously and why this connection garnered a lot of industry attention because everybody was like, oh, man, like, 3D Realms is going to finish the game, but, like, people who worked on it are going to wow this is cool this is crazy we're video games we don't give a shit that duke nukem's a fucking misogynist horrible piece of trash franchise mm -hmm. at the time of this announcement the game had been in development for 14 years and should have remained in the grave yeah it is released in june of 2011 and is easily one of the worst games ever made it is a rush hack job at best and yeah something like that is incredibly hard to develop and complete but i'm a lot less charitable towards it because it is an incredibly sexist toxic unfunny game that belongs in the dumpster with poop from your butt is there a character named Duke Nukem in it? The main character's <laughs> name is Duke Nukem. Yeah, that's his name. Does it have anything to do with Nukem High? Uh, there was a there was an anecdote that went around for a very long time where the voice actor John St. Clair, uh, th there was like a one-liner from the game being like, I've got brass balls. And he would just carry around a pair of brass balls. Comedy. No. <laughs> 
In August of 2011, Borderlands 2 is announced. Woo! It comes out in September of 2012, so we can reasonably assume it had already been in development for some time. They did oh, not yeah. spend a year working on Borderlands 2. Back in 2011, Aliens Colonial Marines has a strong showing at E3. Six screenshots. <laughs> and a written <laughs> promise from Randy Pitchman that everything's that going will, great. That, that if, if you don't like the game, he will... Eat his own poop. No, no, no. He'll eat his own poop. He will... He will bring you to finish. <laughs> By eating his own poop. It's erotic. <laughs> the 11-minute live demo is impressive and stylish, and people are excited for Aliens Colonial Marines again. It also has uh, the added bonus of now acting as an official sequel to Aliens, canon in the Aliens film universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, like a boy. big selling point at this point. It's like, like yeah, like Randy Pitchford was, was doing the press circuit and being like, yeah, this is a, an official sequel. Like, it is sanctioned by 20... 20th century sanction by 20 guys that I told about it. <laughs> Though the game would be further delayed twice from <laughs> spring to fall of 2012 and then fall 2012 to Q1 2013, hype for Aliens Colonial Marines picks up steam and faith in Gearbox is at least partly restored when Borderlands 2 is released in 2012 to critical and commercial acclaim. Ahum. Additionally, Randy Pitchford provides the public with some information talking to a seven screenshots yeah i mean yeah he's trying to mitigate like hey we got it delayed again talking with official playstation magazine he reveals that the delays were to secure the performances of many original cast members including michael bean and mark rolston reprising their roles of dead characters and lance hendrickson who he was bishop uh who was an android so he's like a different android now so now the moment of truth release date february 12th 2013 something smells funky though it gets a worldwide i'm sorry it was me it gets a worldwide release most games have staggered releases in japan north america etc and what's that a review embargo uh -oh. oh boy kevin smith the game comes out and boy howdy it's bad here's jeff cork writing for game informer in his review quote take away the aliens license and you've got a shooter that has no reason to exist it would be like stripping the terraforming from Fracture or playing Inversion without its gravity-defying gimmick. At its best, it's barely mediocre. The license is all there is. Aliens has cast a long shadow in the gaming world, inspiring plenty of excellent games throughout the decades. It's a shame that the actual license hasn't spawned anything approaching those levels of success. Aliens Colonial Marine... Aliens, Colonial Marines, odious mess can be smelled from low orbit, and only the most ardent alien fans will find anything redeeming, end quote. The Executionist game, style. Yeah, the, the game holds mid-40s on Metacritic, and the gaming community at large tries to dissect what happened. Folks begin to notice that the game suffers from a noticeable downgrade from the demos. Normally, I don't like this criticism. Of course, contained de game demos look better. They're demos, but here the difference is so stark that it's almost like Gearbox didn't even make it. While Sega and Gearbox have never officially commented on what really happened internally, several folks from the studio Gearbox spoke anonymously about the development process. One individual working with Gearbox in 07-08 had this to say, quote, Gearbox was taking people off the project and put them on Borderlands 1. This was before the big art style change happened on Borderlands. Our team was getting smaller by the month, making it very difficult to get that game made. Uh, that's a quote reported by Jim Sterling for Gamasutra. 
Despite the Colonial Marines team not operating at full capacity, Gearbox continued to accept milestone checks from Sega as though the team was full. Uh, that is, again, an allegation made by an internal leak. I believe that's just fraud. I think I'm that's just fraud. pretty sure that's just fraud. To, to receive money for something uh, that you're not doing is fraud. Sega actually caught wind of this and temporarily canceled the project at the end of 08. This was the driving factor behind the layoffs. Remember those? That hit Gearbox in 08. Yeah, but by the way, I should clarify, everything from here on out is all through leaks. So while they've never officially commented and this is not like, quote unquote, true factual information, this is all like people internal to the studio who games journalists know and trust talking about what actually went down. What Tom is saying is that he's no better than InfoWars. After Borderlands was released, it did so well that Gearbox immediately went to work on a sequel. They didn't wait at all. They just were like immediately like, okay, uh-uh, fuck, fuck this Colonial Marines thing that we've been delaying for years and years and years. Everything's going into Borderlands. Not everything. Put the, put, Things put are going the whole first level into the end of the game. Yeah. They are still God, also- God, I love Borderlands 2 so fucking much. They're still also working on Duke Nukem at this time. So, so again, they're still working on three AAA projects, one of which is a sequel, which is going to be more ambitious. I mean, like, you've played Borderlands 2. It's bigger than it's Borderlands bigger, 1. Better, it's more ambitious. Wetter. There are more guns. Sega, at this time in 2009, had to choose between funding Colonial Marines or the untitled Alien RPG. So, like, they, they stop. Like, they stop. They stop. And Obsidian continues to make games, but, like, I, I mean, like, how... When, when a project gets canceled, it affects a studio. People people get reorganized. People can get fired. Like, this is a real material effect on the lives of people. And Gearbox is just like, oh, no, no, no. We, we're going to make Borderlands 2. Fuck this Aliens bullshit. Fuck that. Fuck any, fuck any professional courtesy or responsibility that we have to our colleagues and peers in game dev. Fuck them. Regardless, development continues somehow on Colonial Marines, but there are just not enough hands on deck. So Gearbox outsources development. As in earlier parts of the story, I should note that outsourcing is not uncommon or even necessarily a bad thing. This was done with Sega's knowledge and approval. However, in context of the story, outsourcing is an issue. They enter into talks with a developer called TimeGate, a smaller company, but solid. I was actually doing research because I was like, who is TimeGate? Who's TimeGate? Uh, there was a game they made called Section 8, which is nothing like game-changing or special. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually do remember playing the, like, Xbox Live demo and enjoying it and having a fun time. You know, these were these were uh, small developers working kind of more or less within their means, trying to gain clout in the industry. So they're thrilled at the opportunity to work on an Aliens game that's published, that's going to be published by Sega, Gearbox, that's made Borderlands and Duke Nukem. I mean, like, whatever you feel about Duke Nukem, like, that's that's a name. And so they're like, the yeah. The name of the fucking main character. Yeah, yeah. And so TimeGate takes it. Gearbox sends over the assets, but TimeGate's developers are shocked at the state of the game. Quote, there was obviously not four years of work done. The assortment of assets has been described as a, quote, hodgepodge, some of which, quote, just didn't seem like they fit there. Despite four years of development, a final script did not exist. That is wild. Wait, what? Yeah, a final script did not exist. <laughs> that's uh, okay. That's bad. Like and, they're and, bad at their jobs. Yeah, then, like and, that's bad craftsmanship. Yeah, in a lot of games, like it you is, need a script. It is based around like levels are created and then a script is made. Games or, have or, multiple, but, but games have multiple types of scripts. They have dialogue bibles. They have blueprint type scripts. They have story based scripts. Like, 
Like, you need five or six scripts yeah. when you make a video game. It, they're very complicated. And, but and so, and it does not exist. Four years. Four years have gone by, and it does not exist. Writers were constantly reworking the material they'd been given. Quote, this, this, is, this is an incredible quote. For a couple of months, we were kind of just guessing. What does that mean? What do like, you mean just guessing? No, no, no. Yeah, like the, the people at TimeGate were like, we have no idea what this game is supposed to be about. We've oh, just been given man. a bunch of like assets that don't seem to really make anything cohesive. And like, we don't know what this game is supposed to be about at all. That's actually insane. Yeah. It's unclear how much of the final product is TimeGate's creation, though, given how little they were given to work with. Colonial Marines can be considered mostly a TimeGate production. Indeed, uh, the demo was entirely theirs. Uh, the reason for the downgrade in appearance was actually optimization for low-performance consoles. It should be noted that they were assured by Gearbox to focus on aesthetic rather than performance. Quote, we were told many times through demo production, don't worry about performance, just make it awesome. Uh, uh, continued quote from this source. There was a reason, uh, bracket, the demos were never playable, meaning that press was never allowed to play the gameplay demos. Yeah. Um, because the press is smart and can, you know. <laughs> In 2012, with development of Borderlands 2 nearly complete, Gearbox took the project back from TimeGate. <laughs> and by the way, here's what happens. They remove a lot of TimeGate staff members and even cause a few layoffs. So again, like, like these, these terrible, these, they're bad at their job. I think, I think, I, I you know, I think that we are kind of guilty of doing like some Dunning-Kruger, like we've no, we have no experience, but we could do this better on this show. But like, I really think here in this case, like this is just, this is just a case of like really selfish money-making ends clearly just hurting people internal and external to the company like it's, it's bad it's leadership ridiculous. yeah people are losing their jobs evidently gearbox did change a lot of what timegate made although that's just from gearbox employees uh they changed a lot of things from both an optimization standpoint as well as much of the actual game structure turns out the game couldn't even run on the ps3 at the time this is 2012 this is 2012 <laughs> we're we are at best a year and a month from release yeah. yeah and also like the ps4 is around the corner gearbox employees knew there was not enough time to create a shippable game but felt that they had no choice but to just finish i'm sure there was a bunch of like ridiculous crunch going on like unhealthy crunch at gearbox yeah they because they were out of chances with sega they can't ask for another delay this game's been in, in development for what like seven a years a billion now? minutes quote the game feels like it was made in nine months and that's because it was end quote in april of 2013 two individuals roger damien perrine and john Locke, filed a class action lawsuit against both sega and gearbox alleging that they had falsely advertised colonial marines in may timegate studios filed for chapter 7 bankruptcy and closed later that month chapter 7 bankruptcy chapter 7 i don't know what the difference is <laughs> about four chapters Sega settled their side of the lawsuit in 2014 for the sum of $1.25 million. All in gold rings. <laughs> that, when, that when someone in slapped the head of Sega, and, they all fell out of his pocket. Gold rings and commissioned Sonic the Hedgehog porn. <laughs> and fucking Chili Cheese dogs. Gearbox continues to this day to push back against the litigation on the grounds that, one, they supplemented development with millions of their own money. Two, they have not seen a return on the game as the sales were insufficient to trigger a sales-based payment to Gearbox. Again, work on your game. 
do your job. And not, yeah, not to direct that at the developers, but at no, the administrators no. who, again, are like in, in charge of what these people were actually developing at the time. And that they were three, in fact, not involved in the sale and advertisement of Aliens Colonial Marines, despite their president, Randy Pitchford, providing glowing commentary in several press videos and demos and appearing on podcasts and Randy. Also, Gearbox recently was like, we want the fans to write Borderlands 3. And everyone's response was like, why? Remember when that <laughs> happened with Mega Man Legends 3? Uh, don't, don't. Trust yourselves. Perhaps most damning of all, however, is that Gearbox would later go on to develop and release Battleborn, maybe one of the most vocally derided games of the late 2010s. What because the fuck is that? Terrible. It's, it's so bad. bad. It's so stupid. It's so you look bad. at one screenshot. All you need to do is look at a screenshot. So, so rarely can you judge a book by its cover, but you can judge Battleborn by a screenshot. Dude, Battleborn came out around the same time as Overwatch, and it was like not even funny how much better overwatch did and they're basically the same game yeah so uh that's my story i i should also say wow. that it's it's whack because this is not like a isolated incident like randy pitchford also uh no pun intended but like really pitched for duke nukem forever and how good of a game it was going to be and like we know and they know that that game was not going to be good it was just like a naked lie to sell copies that's what it that's what it was. That, yeah. Oh, fun fact. This is a weird fun fact, by the way. So I was researching the, the people uh, filing this lawsuit and to just like find out a little bit about them. Turns out one half of the team is accused of threatening a judge's family. That is uh, uh, Roger Damien Perrine. So I guess everyone's horrible is the moral <laughs> of the story. Um, sometimes we talk about bummer shit and then we like to talk about happy shit and what we like to call the self-care corner. Uh, I took Rhoda to daycare with Jane on Tuesday. Uh, she, there's a great daycare spot near where Jane and I work. And during our lunch break, we went to go check on Rhoda because we were really worried that she was not going to be having a blast. And she was having a ball running around Aww. playing with the other pup's tail all a wagon. And it was great to see. And then she got groomed and she's all soft now. She's perfect. My self-care corner for this week is I finally got my California license in the mail and the picture is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. I look like I'm uh, channeling Post Malone. I look... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should say, by the way, do not like Post Malone. Do not like him. Is, uh, is channeling Post Malone the third season of that Channel Zero show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, I look, I look like, uh, uh, <laughs> I look so ridiculous. My eyes are like looking in two different directions. I look like I should be playing in Fiddler. Um, yeah, it's a fun photograph. And honestly, uh, I'm really happy that I look like a dumb idiot oaf rather than like a murderer, which so many people look like in their licensed photos. So that's my self-care corner is my license. Follow so us. Media Majors Cast at Media Majors Cast on Twitter, Media Majors Podcast, gmail.com. Leave ratings and reviews on iTunes if you like the show. Follow the Major Cast Network on Facebook. And remember, as always, we'll be there for you. Boom! Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.